Return of the Jedi is the first Star Wars movie I can remember watching from start to finish. I was so young I can remember my dad reading me the subtitles in Jabba's Palace. I remember the opening scene with Darth Vader's arrival at the new Death Star. What stood out, and what continues to stand out, is how much these movies had improved over time. The set pieces looked phenomenal, Darth Vader's helmet and armor is polished, the video quality is crisp and clear. We can see significant improvements in the film quality from 1977 to 1983. I remember Luke making his entrance as this dark-robed Jedi, force-choking the pigmen. Dad, 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 how is he doing that? I asked. The power of the Force, he replied. What's the Force? Be quiet and watch the movie, son. I was young when I watched these movies, but I can remember feeling simultaneously curious and uncomfortable by the Slave Leia costume. I can remember the graphics, set, and film quality being better than other movies. I loved the Ewok Battle of Endor. I can vaguely remember even my mom sitting down for the speeder scene. The speeder scene was definitely groundbreaking. I mean, it's one thing to do these scenes in space with a black background and sets. Now we've taken it to the forest with real living backgrounds without control of a set. The final confrontation between Luke and Darth Vader was amazing for so many reasons. And these reasons would seem intuitive, but unfortunately they were barely followed for the prequel or sequel trilogy. The original trilogy has a protagonist and a antagonist. The main conflict is between Luke, Skywalker, and Darth Vader. Everything else in this movie is a side quest and gets treated that way. Each interaction, the conflict, and the stakes between the opposing sides escalates. We start with Luke besting Darth Vader at spaceflight and Luke destroying the Death Star. It's followed in Empire Strikes Back by a direct physical confrontation. Darth has captured Luke's friends and has potentially killed Han Solo, Luke's pseudo-brother. Darth has severed Luke's sword fighting hand. So we know that in Return of the Jedi, that when these two meet for the last time, it will be epic, and Return of the Jedi does not disappoint. There have been many trilogies over the years, and with most, the wheels seem to come off in the third part. The original Spider-Man trilogy, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles trilogy, Matrix Revolutions, Godfather Part 3, The Mummy Movies, The Terminator Movies, X-Men 3, and on and on and on. How Lucas kept it all together and nailed the conclusion is a marvel and accomplishment in modern cinema. Do you think there is another trilogy out there that can actually compare to like how tight and clean and just well done the like these three movies together are? I think the only one is Lord of the Rings. And I mean, it helps that it had solid source material to go off of. But The Hobbit, I think The Hobbit blows it. Yeah, but I, I think that's because The <laughs> Hobbit didn't have, didn't have enough story to make into three movies. Like they started borrowing from the Cimmerillion to tie in all this stuff. And mm -hmm. I think there's some diehard, diehard Tolkien fans will disagree with me. But the plethora of source material, I think, definitely helped. Like with Star Wars, George Lucas had written so much about Star Wars and about these three movies and then he just kind of whittled down from there. So we don't know the whole whole source material, but I think there was a lot of source material to whittle down into a nice uh concise kind of narrative for the the three movies. Right. I don't I don't think he was just like writing it as he went along. I think he had a lot of ideas because I know even, you know, he mentions the Clone Wars, you know, in this offhand Obi-Wan dialogue in episode four i think he already had a pretty big idea of what else was out there in the universe and what else had been going on and the backstory for all of these things like we talked about in our ep in our episode for new hope they don't give the whole backstory of everything but i think lucas had it in his head 
that's the thing I think with doing a, a nice, well-rounded trilogy is you need to have it, it. A good trilogy is one story in three parts instead of three separate episodes with similar characters. Right. And I think like the other ones that I listed, that's the reason why the wheels start to fall off is that there was no overarching kind of story. It was a lot of making it up as they go along. And they don't. It's really hard to stick the landing. I think mm-hmm. the the MCU didn't come up good or bad for their trilogies because they're not really trilogies. Right, right. It's they're they're made to be standalone movies that connect with each other. Right. Yeah. So really, it's a it's a multi. It's basically one season of a TV show. Yeah. But the episodes are three hours. Right. Right. And they're made over you know a decade. Rogue One is not part of the trilogy, right? It's it, it starts right before, right? It finishes right before A New Hope begins, mm-hmm. but it doesn't belong with it, right? What you're talking about, there being one protagonist, right? You have other people who are involved with him and who have important stories to play and their own character arcs to live through, but it's really about Luke and it's really about Darth Vader, and for that reason, Rogue One isn't part of that same story. I think you can make the connection that the prequel trilogy is still about the same thing because it's about Anakin. But yeah, and, and we'll we'll get to that in the coming weeks. But um, I do think that that this is like a perfect trilogy because every like the, the stakes are always escalating. So when it comes to the prequels, the problem is is that the protagonist or sorry the antagonist the emperor is in the shadows and he's Mm -hmm. we know he's eventually the bad guy but he's not openly the bad guy so there's no one who directly opposes or challenges anakin or obi-wan so there's no real escalating conflict between these episodes it's really just filler time before we find out that anakin becomes darth vader right and then similar thing between in the in the sequel trilogy is that Ray's kind of the protagonist and Kylo Ren is kind of the antagonist, but we keep ham-fisting all these other characters in and making the main quests instead of side quests mm-hmm. as if we're supposed to care about these people. Like as if Finn is also a main character mm-hmm. and, and Poe Dameron is also a main character and they're trying mm-hmm. to shove all these main character arcs into something. And it's like, I don't really care what happens between Ray and Kylo Ren. Because they're not really directly opposing each other. And the stakes aren't escalating between them every time. Right, right. And then there's a new bad guy. Every time. You know, like it yeah. doesn't it doesn't feel like a full trilogy. But this, to bring it back, this is a finale. Like this is the whole way through you feel this kind of rising tension of this is happening. We're, we're coming to the conclusion. The bad guys have kind of souped up their weapon. They're back right? Mm -hmm. Because they didn't destroy the emperor or the empire. They destroyed its tool. Yeah. And, and now they're back again and they kind of have to come back for that final swing. And I think part of why it feels like the finale is because the emperor is on board and the emperor dies, right? You don't really know who he is. He's not really even the bad guy. Mm -hmm. Like he's, he's not really, the the villain in all of this the villain is darth vader mm-hmm. the the emperor is the embodiment for the empire right the what everyone else is fighting against is the emperor mm-hmm. what luke is fighting against is vader mm-hmm. and i think it was executed 
excellently. Yeah, like actually, when you compare it to other trilogies, you you have to stand back and say, yeah, some people hate Return of the Jedi because they see it they they saw it as like a marketing tool, and the Ewoks were annoying, and on and on. But really, like you compare this trilogy to any other trilogy, nobody else sticks a landing like this, mm-hmm. yeah. where they wrap up every loose end. You've seen things building and drawing to inevitable conclusion, and they get there. Mm-hmm. With the other, like I walked away from uh, Attack of the Clones, not really caring whether or not I saw Dooku ever again. Right. I walked away from the Last Jedi thinking I hate Ray more than I did in the first movie, and Kylo Ren's being underutilized. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. But then this. They, they go and collect Han. They get him back, right? That's wrapped up, right? They deal with Jabba. That's kind of the first quest. Yeah. Luke goes and finishes training because that was something he failed to do in the last movie. He goes, completes his training. He finds out who Leia is. He confirms who Vader is. Mm-hmm. And then he, he heads off to join for the rest of the quest, for that final quest, which is destroying the death star again and uh, and and destroying the emperor mm-hmm. once and for all right they make it clear that the reason they're going after the death star it's right now the emperor's on is board. because the emperor's on board he's there he's there to oversee the the final construction of it which they had a lot more to go like it was very mm-hmm. much not finished so <laughs> he was planning to be there yeah. for a while I but you think. see yeah like you you've described the stakes are escalating for everybody in every movie it's escalated for the rebellion it's escalated for han solo it's escalated for luke skywalker princess leia everybody's got some rising stakes and tension and i can imagine people walking out of the theater after the end of uh, empire strikes back and just being like oh my god when is the next one coming out? But with the the sequel and prequel, it's like, when's the next one coming out so I could wrap this bullshit up? So we can just put it away, put it to bed, and not worry about it yeah. again. And do you know what? That's yeah. uh, what, what you're saying about the rising stakes. I think the opportunity is rising as well, right? Like in the first one, congratulations, you destroyed this station. Great work. In the, in the third one, it becomes, no, no, you're destroying the station it's more dangerous, it's more risky, but but the emperor's on board, right? Like it's not just the stakes that are increasing, it's the opportunity. There there's so much more to go on and and going back to the conversation about the MCU, you know, making that distinction like setting the audience up for how what they should expect, right? Mm-hmm. I don't expect Thor Thor 2 to necessarily be an immediate continuation of the story from Thor 1 yeah. because it's not set up as we're making a trilogy here it's no we're we're taking the the same characters mm-hmm. and we're just making another movie with them yeah it, that i think it would have been a lot better uh for for other movies not naming any names but the sequel trilogy if you know if they wanted different directors and stuff to have different people doing it. And I only bring it up for contrast because we're talking about a perfect trilogy versus probably one of the worst trilogies ever. Ever. Yeah. So next point I've got for discussion is the story of the slave Leia costume. Mm. Do you know the story of the costume and how it came to be? 
No idea. This is like the greatest story in movie history. So you look at Leia in A New Hope, and she's wearing like a very flowy, baggy... She's like the paper bag princess, right? Mm-hmm. Leia in Empire Strikes Back, she's like wearing a snowsuit for the whole movie. So after Empire Strikes Back, Carrie Fisher actually goes to George Lucas and and complains to him about costume design. And he's like, hey, look, I didn't want people to stare at your body. I wanted people to focus on the character of Leia mm-hmm. and for her to be this strong, independent kind of woman and not just get written off as like a pinup model. Right. Okay, so that's why I've kind of made you, costumed you in a way that just lets your character stand out instead of your body stand out. She's like... People can't tell I'm a woman in these costumes you're putting me in. And she's like going at it with it. So he's like, okay, you want people to know you're a woman? I will make sure the world forever knows how much of a woman you are. (laughs) Is that true? That is the story. Yeah. That is so funny. That is so funny. And you know, I just love Carrie Fisher. Uh, I read her book, The Princess Diarist. Right. It was so well done. I mean, I listened to the audio book, which was read by her, by Carrie Fisher, and then in the book, she includes mm-hmm. diary entries from the time while they were filming, while they were making these movies. And so you get like this peek into what was in Carrie Fisher's mind when she was a young woman in Star Wars. And, uh, and she talks about this and her daughter, uh, Billy Lord, reads those diary entries in, in the audiobook. So it's pretty cool. The, the way that they did it. And Carrie Fisher, one of the things she says, she doesn't say this in a diary entry, but she says it personally as like, then, by then an old woman, right? And she was very aware. She, she's, like, she's like, I know I was like the first wet dream for, you know, hundreds and thousands and millions of boys around the world. Yeah. She was yeah. like very aware. And I thought that was like a really interesting thing when you're when and this is kind of getting meta and away from just talking about the art which is the return of the jedi but when you're creating something like this it becomes you know more than you like you're not a human anymore and i think that that started to happen and i think star wars was one of the first things where where that really started to happen where it was kind of an ongoing thing and the actors weren't human anymore. They were forever connected mm-hmm. with their on-screen counterparts. Uh, the the production itself, the universe that it's set in, became like more of a real thing to people. It wasn't just a fun movie. It you know started to become a fandom, like a lifestyle. Yeah. For people, right? So the trilogy as a whole, I think, really changed, really changed cinema. And I'm sure they're were other actors beforehand. There's always been, you know, celebrities, right, that get picked up on the street and noticed and whatever. But I feel like this is the first time where there was, like, a fandom. The Yeah, well, like, Mark Hamill basically just had to go into voice acting. Mm-hmm. I think... Uh, Which he's nailed, by yeah, the way. Like, well, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, like, lots of uh, Carrie Fisher's film roles just become cameos, mm-hmm. kind of. Like, she didn't really act. I, did she get into writing? I think I think she just kind of got heavy into writing. I'm not sure all of what her career looked like after that. Harrison Ford kept acting. He was able to in yeah. in stuff. Yeah, yeah. He 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 managed to to keep doing stuff, and I think it helped that he had done things before that. Right? 
He was already Indiana Jones. I think that came out before Star Wars. It was after. Was it after? Yeah, sorry. Well, then. Indiana Jones film series. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It came out four years. But he'd, like, he'd been in Apocalypse Now. Like, he'd had some minor acting roles in bigger movies. Um, but, yeah, like, Mark, out of the big three, one of them has a, a career that keeps going. The other two are so eternally just they became the character like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. But then yeah. I think Mark Hamill did a really good job of using his voice. Cause amazing voice actor, incredibly yeah. talented and yeah. uh, it's paid off for him. And then Carrie Fisher, I guess she did. I, I think she went into writing. Um, I mean, she did write that book, the princess diarist that I read that was later on, but still, you know, incredibly talented people, but it really became, larger than life okay so carrie fisher ended up becoming a screen doctor for the 90s and uh and early 2000s um some of the movies that she did rewrites for were hook lethal weapon and even the star wars prequels um also sister act last action hero the wedding singer coyote ugly and scream three so she played a hand in all of these things she became a great rewriter in hollywood and uh yeah which is awesome so i I think it's interesting everybody kind of found where they where they fit. Yeah. So have you heard about the David Prowse ripoff? This is like famous in Hollywood. No. Okay. Ex- explain it to me. I remember hearing some like drama. Is this like the drama around David Prowse? Yeah. Yeah. So he was the he was the guy who played Darth Vader. Didn't do the voice, right? And so what Hollywood does is they when they work out deals with people, they work out royalty deals and it's usually for most of your average actors, it's based off of net profit for the movie. And for your kind of your top billing cast, if they've got enough clout to negotiate it, they'll go for gross. And so what Hollywood does is that when they make a movie, they will incorporate a separate entity. So when they made return of the Jedi, they made an illegal entity called like return of the Jedi Inc. Interesting. Okay. And then all the revenue goes to Return of the Jedi, Inc., or whatever. And then all the salaries and wages come out of that corporation. And what they'll do is that, like uh, 20th Century Fox or whatever, they will charge marketing fees and advertising fees and management fees to the film, to the incorporated film. And they usually do that to bring the profit down to $0. And it's totally legal, and the IRS doesn't care. Because it's an expense for the movie, the incorporated movie entity, but it ends up becoming revenue for 20th Century Fox or Disney. So they end up paying tax on it one way or another, and the IRS doesn't care because they're still getting their money. It's legally dubious. Doing stuff like this is not allowed in Europe and other more civilized countries. Um, (laughs) But in the U.S., they're still totally allowed to do that. So David Prowse has a deal on the net profit of Return of the Jedi, and to this day, he has not received a royalty check. Really? Yeah, or his estate, because I think he's dead now. But Yeah, he died. I think he died last year. And that's just kind of dubious Hollywood accounting. He got really excited about this net profit deal, because when you think about a company, oh, a company's profitable. If I got a share of the net profit, I'm basically a partner. I'm basically a shareholder. I'm, you know, I got to say, and then, yeah, you got nothing, because we just do this to screw people what the heck right but like uh like what 
Um, Robert Downey Jr. negotiated for Iron Man was part of gross revenue, so he became like a multimillionaire. Oh yeah, he's right. <laughs> he's got it made. Off of the, but he had the clout to negotiate for the right. And I think another thing was like Paramount was like, we don't think this movie's really going to go anywhere. Right, right. And then it ended up becoming and it huge. became this huge, huge thing, and RDJ became the face of it. Yeah, and I think he he was the highest paid actor in Hollywood for for the last little bit long time of the MCU. A big part of it was his his gross revenue. I mean, when it's making a billion dollars. Yeah. And you get 5% of a billion dollars. I'd take I'd take that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, interesting. Something else I wanted to talk about are just like our favorite parts of this movie, like the things that when we think about when we think about Return of the Jedi What's like, what are the first things that, that come to mind? Um, it like the green lightsaber. Right. The new, I see you have constructed your own lightsaber. Yeah. And I think like, it's funny that they made it green because the opening scene was going to be in a desert with blue sky. So to make it stand out, they made it green instead of blue. But then like the fandom creates this whole right. mythology of lightsaber colors and what that means about the Jedi style of force sensitivity versus being a warrior, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and really it's just like, uh, this was just for practical effects purposes. <laughs> don't, don't you love that? You guys, you guys are all taking this a little too seriously. Relax. <laughs> yeah, makes you wonder if that's how all religions start. I, I think, yeah, it, it just might. No, no, this you was guys, just... like, I was just taking a bath, and it's like, he's baptizing him. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how it, how it, how it started. Yeah, it's literally, it, it's like, no, I'm just, I'm just bathing him. No, you are making him clean. I mean, yes, no, spiritually clean. It's like, well, no, what? (laughs) Clean. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's made out of practicality, and then it kind of takes on a life of its own, right? Like I think, yeah, those those types of things when there are ideas that we we use just kind of just because, but then we we later give a reason for it right? Like we give some explanation for it. And I think art does this a lot when there are restraints, right? Like mm-hmm. we, we've talked about before how how great it is that Lucas only takes us to like three planets where we spend the first half of the movie in one place and then we kind of split up and, and go elsewhere. And then there's like part in space, right? Mm-hmm. That's largely because we can't afford to go everywhere else once you, yeah, but it works. Right. But then once you get into the sequel trilogy, we're here, we're here, we're here, jump here, go here, go here, go right to a hundred different planets in one movie. Mm -hmm. But because of the budget restraints, the effects, right. We can't make it look like we're on a hundred different planets. Right. Mm -hmm. Because of that, I think we get really focused and I, th- I think the art is able to really stand out because we're, we're looking at one, you know, we're, we're, we're working with these restraints on practicality, budget, whatever it is. And I think that's awesome. Uh, how about you? What, what's something that stands out for you? I've always loved the, the final run at the Death Star. Like the, when the Millennium Falcon goes into the Death Star... I always thought that was the coolest thing mm-hmm. because it's, you know, it's tight, right? Like 
you know this thing barely fits in there and it's going through and it's weaving through and there's TIE fighters following and there's other X-wings and Y-wings and whatever else they they had going mm -hmm. in there. And uh, yeah, and then seeing Lando fly it too was was a lot of fun for me. I don't know why, I just felt like, oh, you know, somebody else is like in this thing, you know. Uh, another thing was... Uh, the unmasking of Darth Vader, because like at the point in time where I saw them, there were no prequels. Anakin did not have a face. And so actually seeing who was behind Darth Vader was really um, amazing. I think, like I mentioned it in my essay that like the arrival of the Emperor's ship or when Darth Vader arrives at the start of the movie and everything is like shiny and polished. And if you watch A New Hope, it's like cheap plastic PVC. Everything's very, very dull. The Darth Vader, the first Darth Vader helmet isn't actually symmetrical. Is it not? It's not. No, there's a big thing about this. Because um, the, the way they made it, like they didn't have a mold for it. They didn't just mold two pieces of plastic and shove them together in the middle. Um, so it's not perfectly symmetrical. But now that we're getting to the last movie, it's like, like everything is polished. Everything's clean. This is a real movie now. You've got the red uh, Imperial Guards. Right. Right. And everybody's like talking about this emperor who's finally going to show up. And it's like, oh, shit, like things are going down now. Yeah, that is a good point. There there definitely is like talking about the budget constraints there. There's definitely an increase, like very obvious increase, even from four to five. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. I, I see. I see you earned money on the on the previous film. Like, good job, you know. I think I think that's really cool. And I think because of the money that was earned, they were able to continue doing that. As we get into the other movies, we'll be able to talk about the way technology changed. And that just has to do with time. But time doesn't guarantee an uh, you know increase in technology, right? It doesn't guarantee that. But because of the success of these movies, they were able to do more and build more and try more things and invent new techniques and stuff which i thought was fantastic i know lucas self-funded a new hope did he self-fund all of them i don't know because when another thing is like when you've got your own skin in the game you manage the movie differently than when disney gives you a blank check because honestly like force awakens is basically just like a nerd's passion project with an unlimited budget when you look at it in, in its totality it's actually very amateur what did it contribute that was unique, different, or interesting? He made it. He made a pastiche, and we'll we'll get to that. Just a yeah, a, yeah. a little foreshadowing so, for people and what we think about the the sequel trilogy. We don't hate. We don't hate Disney Star Wars though. We don't think it's. We don't think it's all bad. Are you trying to do a Jedi mind trick on me? I'm. I no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to reassure the okay. audience that yeah. they can. They can. This is a safe space. This is a safe space. We're going to talk about things we love and hate about each of these movies. It just so happens that the original trilogy is a perfect trilogy. A lot more that we love than we it, hate. It's, it's not that, uh, that the other movies that we, you know, don't have other things that we love about the movies. Or that we, you know, I, I think I love Revenge of the Sith. Mm -hmm. I would rather watch Revenge of the Sith than Return of the Jedi, right? But... The sequel trilogy or the prequel trilogy, like as a whole, mm -hmm. is not as good as the original trilogy as a whole. I think that's fair. 
my last thing here to note is the impressive use of light motif. I think it's one of the strongest scenes in the entire nine series of movies is um, Luke gets his robotic hand shot at the start of the movie. He tries covering it up with a glove. Then when he's fighting Darth Vader at the end and he starts becoming overcome with the dark side of the force and he cuts off Darth Vader's hand and Darth Vader's weakened, the Emperor starts laughing and Luke looks at shock and horror. With he, He's got this look of shock and horror at his robotic hand and the Imperial March theme plays in the background so, so slightly. And you know, without anybody saying anything, that Luke is being confronted with choosing the dark side or the light side of the force. And and becoming his father. Yeah. Because he sees he sees his father had a robotic hand. Yeah. He didn't know that before. He didn't know that, you know, he knew he was more machine than man now. You know, but seeing like very clearly, oh, he has a robotic hand. And seeing his hand, which they set up at the beginning of the movie to remind you this is a robotic hand, yeah. right? It happens in the last movie, but they remind you in this movie, this is a robotic hand. Yeah. And so that when that happens, even as a kid, I picked up on that. Even as a kid, I thought, oh, he's worried about becoming his dad. Mm-hmm. It was the perfect example. I'm glad you brought this up because it was the perfect example of show don't tell. Absolutely incredible scene. And there's another scene where they, like they prime you a lot in this movie. And I... When I was younger, I, when you watch it all together, you take things for granted, like the robotic hand. Why are they shooting his robotic hand? I know he's got a robotic hand. I just saw that last Saturday. But it had been three years since anybody had seen anything. Then another thing, at the very start when uh, Darth Vader's making his entrance onto the Death Star, the shuttle has to give access codes to get the shield dropped. And it's like, I remember watching that and be like, I just saw them deal with like shields and stuff like that on Hoth. Why are we going through this like educational lesson? It's priming the audience, getting them ready, giving them a guffin so that they have to go to Endor to shut down the shield generator, yep. just in case the audience forgot from the last movie three years ago that there's a shield generator. So excellent priming, excellent foreshadowing goes on in this movie. Best, most solid, straight through trilogy. Because honestly, even Lord of the Rings drags in a lot of parts, but this is... It, it, and the ending drags. Yeah. For yeah, sure. but yeah. this is they take- great. Have you seen, do you know who Ryan George is? No. He's a YouTuber. So he, he makes these pitch meeting videos on uh, Screen Rant. Okay, yeah, yeah. And okay, the, yeah. the Lord of the Rings one, it, he, he finishes it. He says, and then they drop the ring in, into Mount Doom and it's over. And then the producer guy says, Oh, that that's great, and then and then he says, and then this happens, and then and then he, this happens, yeah. and then the producer guy's like, okay, I lo-, and then he interrupts him again. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I'll uh, put a link in just, the show notes if I remember. Just before COVID, they put Return of the King back into theaters, like in our local theater. Oh, fun! And my parents, my parents came out, and me and my dad went to see Return of the King, and pretty much after they dropped the ring in the volcano, my dad looks at me and he's like, "Do you just want to go home?" And I, I was like, yeah, yeah, let's get out of here. Because the rest of it's like wandering through Hobbiton, getting on boats to go to uh, uh, the elf lands in a right. strangely homoerotic love affair between Sam and Frodo. Yeah. You know, it's just like, okay, yeah, I've seen all the good stuff. Let's uh, go home. Yeah, I can, I can respect that decision. As a kid, there were two things I loved about this movie. 
Number one was The Party at the End, the Yub Nub song with all the little Ewoks playing on the helmets of dead stormtroopers. They were cute and cuddly and still managed to fight off the bad guys. Of course, as I got older, I started to think I was too cool for this silly merchandising opportunity. The Ewoks were just there to sell toys. Harrison Ford hated Star Wars anyways and didn't even want to come back. And don't forget, George was just making this stuff up as he went along. That's why Luke and Leia kissed in the last one and our brother and sister in this one. It doesn't make any sense. If you can't tell, I came of age in the era of YouTube video essays. So of course I thought all this stuff. Return of the Jedi, though, quickly slid further and further down my list of favorite Star Wars movies until it fell behind almost everything else, and sometimes I thought it was my least favorite. But upon rewatch over the past couple weeks, I realized I love this movie. I mean, I really love it. It's a ride from beginning to end. The rising tension, seeing Luke in all black robes, choking the Gamorrean guards, and then prepping for the final battle with a trip to Yoda and a planning meeting with the rest of the rebels. Lando, Han, Mon Mothma, Admiral Akbar, they're all there. It's time for the final fight. Luke confronting his father, the Emperor manipulating Luke and Vader, right up to the very end. Right to my favorite part, the Yubnub song, The Party. Return of the Jedi was itself the party at the end of the series.